You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. There are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 155 by Rudolf Steiner, ten lectures entitled Christ and the Human Soul in four sections. This is Section 3. The second lecture in that section, which I am numbering number seven. Uh, these are all translated by Agnes Schneeberg de Stur. This is given in Norkipping on July 14, 1914. As we live our daily lives and have an awareness, for example, of everything that we owe to the sun and to what extent the tasks of life are connected with the sunlight, we do not give much thought to the fact that there is something that runs like a thread through all the enjoyment and satisfaction we derive from the sunlight, namely the sure knowledge that on the following morning, after we have rested through the night, the sun will rise again. This is an indication of the confidence that lives in our soul, confidence in the lasting reality of the world order. We may not always carry it in our consciousness, but if asked, we would surely respond in this sense. We devote ourselves to our work today because we know that the fruits of our work are guaranteed for tomorrow, that after the night's rest, the sun will reappear and the fruits of our labor can ripen. We look out over the vegetation covering the earth. We cherish this year's display. We nourish ourselves with the plants and fruits of the earth. We know that it is inherent to the reality of the world order that the plants and fruits for next year will arise from the seeds of this year. And again, if asked why we live our lives with such a sense of security, we would respond in similar fashion, namely that the reality of the world order seems guaranteed to us, that it seems certain that what has been ripening in the old seeds will reappear in the world of reality. But if we ponder this kind of guarantee given through external reality, then there is also something for which we need another kind of support. It is something of quite special significance for our soul life. Only one expression need be mentioned here, and we will realize right away that this is something in life for which we need such support, because, for those who genuinely think and feel, it does not immediately carry such support within itself. This expression is our ideals. So much is contained in this expression, our ideals. Our ideals belong to those things which, if we think and feel in a higher sense, are more important to our souls than external reality. It is our ideals that set our souls aflame inwardly and make life valuable and precious for our souls in a variety of ways. And when we look at outer life, when we look at what guarantees the reality of life for us, oftentimes we are troubled by the thought, is there anything embedded within this reality that guarantees in particular this most precious thing in life, the realization of our ideals? Innumerable conflicts of the human soul result from the fact 
the people of doubts to a greater or lesser extent, about the realization of precisely that which they would want to depend upon with every fiber of their soul-being, that is to say, the realization of their ideals. We need only consider the world of the physical plane in an unprejudiced way, and we shall find innumerable human souls going through the strongest, bitterest inner conflicts because of what they could not achieve, the realization of what they most cherished as ideals. For we cannot deduce, let us say, from the evolution of external reality, that our ideals in life will prove to be the seeds of a future reality in the same way as, for example, we can count on this year's plant seeds to become next year's plant cover. If we consider these plant seeds, we know that in them is contained what next year will become a reality in the broadest sense. But if we consider our ideals, we may indeed harbor the belief that they will have some significance, that they will have some value for life. But we cannot have certainty in the same sense with regard to our ideals. As human beings, we would like our ideals to be the seeds of a time in the future, but we look in vain for anything that can give them this certain reality. As a result, we find, looking even just from the physical perspective, that our souls with their ideals are often in a state of distress. Now, let us pass from the world of the physical plane into the world of the esoteric, into the world of hidden spirituality. Someone who has become a spiritual investigator learns to know and observe souls during the stage in which they have to experience the time between death and a new birth. And it is very revealing to look spiritually at those souls who in their earthly life were overflowing with high ideals, with ideals that were conceived out of the fire and light of their hearts. When a human being has passed through the gate of death and experiences the well-known life tableau, which represents a memory picture of one's past life on earth, then the world of ideals is also interwoven in this life tableau. This world of ideals can appear in such a way to a human being after death that it evokes certain feelings, which may be put into the following words, quote, These ideals, which have fired and illumined my heart and my inmost being, and which have been the dearest, most intimate treasure of my heart, these ideals now have taken on a strange, unfamiliar aspect. They look as though they would not rightly appertain to all that I remember as actual earth experience on the physical plane. And yet the dead person feels as though magnetically attracted to these ideals that were his. He feels as though spellbound, by these ideals. They can be strangely captivating to the dead person, but they may also contain something that gives him a mild fright, something which he feels may be dangerous for him, which may alienate him from the earth evolution and from what is connected with earth evolution in the life between death and a new birth. In order to express myself quite clearly, I would like to connect what I have said to actual experiences to concrete events. These events are already familiar to some of you sitting here, but they will need to be illumined from a specific side this evening so that they may be brought into connection with what I have said about the nature of human ideals.
In the last two years, an individuality with great poetic talent had joined us. Coming from a life dedicated to a purist idealism and having previously experienced a mystical deepening, this individual joined our anthroposophical movement. Despite the fact that his soul dwelt in a frail, declining body, he devoted himself heart and soul to our spiritual movement. In the spring of this year we lost him from earthly existence. He passed through the gate of death. He has left us a series of wonderful poems, published in a volume that came out shortly after his death. Owing to the difficulties of living within this body, he was physically separated from our movement for long periods, either in an isolated spot in the Swiss mountains or in some other place recommended for his health. But even from afar, he remained attached to our movement in his poems, which in certain anthroposophical circles have especially of late been recited over and over again, are the poetic reflection, as it were, of what we have been developing in anthroposophy for more than ten years. Now he has passed through the gate of death and something very remarkable becomes apparent through spiritual investigation of this soul. And it may be said that the significance of this soul's life in that disease-stricken body has become apparent only since death. While working with us in a spiritually true fashion toward the progress of our movement, this soul absorbed something that developed a greater power below the surface of the gradually dying body. This power was concealed by the ailing body as long as the soul dwelt within it. But now when we meet this soul after death, it can be observed that something lights up as it can light up only in the spiritual life the life content which this soul assimilated. The cloud-like realm in which our friend now lives, after having passed through the gate of death, presents itself as a mighty cosmic tableau. For the spiritual observer, this is a most striking sight. People could perhaps say at this point that the spiritual observer can indeed let his gaze wander round the whole wide sphere of the cosmic world of the spirit, it is, however, something else to let one's gaze wander around the whole sphere of the cosmic world of the soul, and then to observe something separated out from a particular human soul that appears like a mighty tableau, like a painting of what otherwise shows itself in the spiritual world. Just as we have the physical world around us, and then see it portrayed in the magnificent paintings of painters like Raphael or Michelangelo, so it is in the spiritual world, with respect to the case that has been mentioned here. Just as we would never say, standing before a painting of Michelangelo or Raphael, that such a painting has nothing more to offer us, because we have the real world available to us, so we would not say, with regard to observing the tableau that mirrors in a soul what otherwise can be seen when observing spiritual reality, that the mighty lighting up of this soul tableau is not an infinite enrichment, and it may even be said that there is infinitely more to be learned when we have before us our friend who has died and whose soul after death contains a reflected image of everything that could be described from out of the spiritual world over the course of many years, then can be learned from direct contemplation of the vastness of spiritual reality.
This is an esoteric fact, a fact that I have repeatedly described to our friends in various other cities as well. I have now taken certain aspects from it that will be important for our considerations today. And this spiritual fact, as it manifests in Christian Morgenstern, shows me something else. In the face of all the current opposition to the revelations of spiritual teachings as we understand them, the question may well be asked, I will not call it doubt, but rather a question to be asked, quote, What kind of progress will this esoteric teaching bring about in the hearts and souls of human beings? Close quote. And, quote, Is there any guarantee, any assurance, that what we are inwardly working with in the anthroposophical society will have a continuing influence on the course of the spiritual evolution of humanity? Close quote. The sight of what the soul of our friend has become is one such assurance from the spiritual world. Why? Our friend who has bequeathed to us the collection of poems titled We Have Found a Path dwells in a mighty cosmic tableau that is like a kind of soul body for him after death. Furthermore, while he was connected with our anthroposophical movement, he took into his being all the things we were able to say about the Christ. Inasmuch as he absorbed this anthroposophical teaching, inasmuch as he united it with his soul in such a way that it truly became the spiritual heart-blood of his soul, to that extent did he absorb it into his soul in a way that for him this anthroposophical teaching contained Christ as its very substance. He assimilated the Christ being together with this teaching. The Christ as he lives in our movement simultaneously passed over into his soul. Now in contemplating this esoteric fact, the following presents itself. A human being who goes through the gate of death can indeed live in a cosmic tableau of this kind. It will accompany him through the life that lies between death and the new birth. It will work in his whole being. It will be embodied in his whole being, or better to say, be ensouled in his whole being. And it will permeate his new life on earth when he descends once more to that earthly life. As such, it contributes something that enables the soul itself to receive a germ of perfection for its own life and thus to progress in the evolution of the earth's existence. All this comes to pass because a soul absorbed something like this teaching into its being. But in the case of this particular soul, as described above, it absorbed this teaching, saturated and spiritualized through and through, by the Christ being, and by the concepts of the Christ being, that we can make our own. And because of this, everything that such a soul absorbs is not merely a treasure that serves the further development of this single soul. Rather, it is a treasure which, through Christ, who is there for everyone, in turn, has an effect upon all of humanity. And the soul tableau, which, as perceived by clairvoyant vision, is developing in the soul of the individuality who recently passed through the gate of death, this soul tableau, as it presents itself, filled through and through with Christ, is for me an assurance that what can be spoken of today from out of the spiritual world will, through Christ's love, radiate down into souls that will come later. These souls 
will be set on fire. They will be inspired by it. It is not only in his own life and toward his own further development that our friend will go on carrying this Christ-filled anthroposophy, but because he absorbed it, permeated with Christ, it will become an impulse from the spiritual world for the souls who will live in the coming centuries. Into them will stream the rays of everything that is Christ-permeated. What your souls receive from a Christ-filled anthroposophy as their most precious treasure. This they can receive not just for themselves, but bear it through epochs of civilization yet to come. If your souls permeate it with Christ, it will stream forth as a seed into the whole of humanity, because the Christ being is the being who belongs to all of humanity. Where Christ is present, the treasures of life are not isolated. They remain fruitful for individuals, but at the same time take on the character of a treasure for all of humanity. This is what we must place clearly before our souls. We see then what a significant difference there is between taking in wisdom that is not imbued with Christ and taking in wisdom that is illumined by the light of Christ. When we come together in smaller settings within our society, we are not there for the sake of engaging in abstract considerations, but in order to put forth true spiritual science, undaunted by what today's world has against it. This is why we can touch on things here that can be made known to us only through spiritual research. A second example shall be mentioned. In recent years we have had occasion in Munich to present what we call the mystery dramas, and Swedish friends have also frequently been present for these performances. What I shall be talking about has already been mentioned as well. It was indeed the case that in performing these mystery dramas, several things had to be done differently compared to other performances in many respects. There had to be a certain sense of responsibility to the spiritual world. We could not approach these mystery plays as if they were ordinary theatrical performances. Indeed, whatever is done in such a case must be done out of one's own soul forces. However, we must be clear about the fact that even in our physical life, when we want to accomplish something through the will of our soul, we have to rely on the use of our muscular power, which is supplied from outside and yet belongs to us. If we lack this muscular power, which comes to us from outside, then there are some things we cannot do. In a certain sense, muscular strength belongs to us, and yet in a way it does not. This is how it is with our spiritual faculties. Only there, things are such that our physical power, our muscular strength, is of no help to us if these spiritual faculties are to be active in the spiritual realm. There, things are such that the powers of the spiritual world itself must come to our aid, that the forces that stream from the spiritual world and enter into our physical world must illuminate and penetrate us. And indeed, even when such new undertakings as our Munich mystery plays may initially begin out of another kind of awareness, it was always clear to me that our project could only be carried out over the course of years, and that the various initiatives could only be fully embraced if very specific spiritual forces supporting these aims flowed into our human forces, if spiritual guardian angel forces flowed into our human forces as it were. 
It was in the early days of our spiritual scientific work, still in a very small circle, that we came together in Berlin at the beginning of the century, a group so small that it was always easy to count the number present. For a short time a devoted soul was always among them, a soul who through her karma was endowed with a very special talent for beauty and art. Even though it was for a short time only, this soul worked with us, especially in connection with the most intimate work that needed to be done in the spiritual scientific realm at that time. With an inner intensity and a serene inner fire, the soul worked among us and particularly took in the teachings that could be given through spiritual science at that time about certain cosmological interrelationships. And I still remember today how at that time a fact came before my soul which may perhaps seem unimportant but shall be mentioned here. When our movement began, a start was also made with a periodical, which for carefully considered reasons at that time was called Lucifer. I wrote an article for it with the title Lucifer, which was meant to give an initial indication of the guidelines for our future work. This article, even if it did not say so in the actual words used, followed the course which the anthroposophical, then theosophical society should uphold. And I think I can say that this article too is Christ imbued. Those who read that article absorb what is actually the lifeblood of Christianity. I may perhaps also mention here that at the time this article met with heated opposition, even among those few who had joined us from the old theosophical movement. This article was considered by many to be entirely un-theosophical. But the personality of whom I have been speaking took up this article with the warmest heart and the deepest inner feelings. And I was able to say to myself, quote, when it is a question of the actual truth, this person's acceptance carries more weight for the progress of our movement than all the opposition put together. Close quote. In short, the soul was deeply interwoven with all that was to flow into our spiritual stream. She died soon thereafter. Already in 1904, she passed through the gate of death. After her death, it took her a little while to grapple in the spiritual world with what she really was. But then, starting from the time of our mystery plays in Munich, not quite as early as 1907, but from 1909 onward, and then to an increasing degree as time went on, it was this soul who was always standing there, safeguarding and elucidating what I had to undertake in connection with the Munich Festival plays. Everything that this soul, because of her talent for the beautiful, was able to give toward the artistic realization of our spiritual ideals, worked down out of the spiritual world, as though coming from the guardian angel of our mystery plays. It worked in such a way that one felt the strength in oneself to take on those initiatives that were necessary because just as our muscular strength supports us in the physical world, so does the spiritual force that is streaming down from the spiritual worlds flow into one's own spiritual force. This is how the dead work with us, how they are present with us. This was yet another case, and now comes the point that I more specifically must speak about today, another case where everything 
that this personality had absorbed from the field of anthroposophy did not just benefit her own life and her own progress in an obvious way, but where it flowed back to us into the project that we initiated for the whole movement. Two things could have potentially occurred. One is that this personality had taken in everything that she could, that she kept it in her soul, and that she could then apply it toward her further progress through life, and also through the life after death. And this is quite right. This is how it ought to happen. For if the human soul is to attain its divine goal, then it must become ever more and more perfect. Then it must do all it can to contribute toward this process of reaching perfection. But because this soul had also taken into herself the whole inner disposition of, quote, being permeated with Christ, close quote, what she had absorbed could work not merely for herself, but could flow down to us and become a kind of common possession, become effective as a common possession for us all. This is what Christ does when he permeates the fruits of our knowledge. He does not take away what these fruits of knowledge represent for us as individuals. The Christ, however, died for all souls. And if we aspire to the insight which all true earthly human beings must come to, quote, not I, but Christ in me, close quote, if we are conscious of the Christ in us, in all that we ourselves know, and if we attribute to Christ the forces that we ourselves employ, then what we take into our being works not for ourselves alone, but for the whole of humanity, then it becomes fruitful for the whole of humanity. Wherever we see human beings, human souls, all over the earth, Christ died for them all. And what they receive in His name, they receive for their own progress toward perfection, but also as a most precious possession that is working for all humankind. Now let us return to our introductory words this evening. It was said that when we look back in our life tableau after death, upon everything that we have lived through, it appears to us as though our ideals might have something unfamiliar about them. What we sense and experience is the following. We feel that our ideals do not connect us to the general life of human beings, that they carry no inherent assurance of reality in the general life of human beings, that they lead us away from it. Lucifer has a powerful influence, especially over our ideals, because they well up so beautifully from the human soul, only from the human soul, however, but are not rooted in external reality. This is why Lucifer has such power, and it is actually the magnetic pull of Lucifer that we experience in our ideals after death. Lucifer approaches us, and it is precisely when we have ideals that these ideals are valuable to him, because he can draw us to himself through the indirect route of these ideals. But if we imbue with Christ what we grasp spiritually, if we feel the Christ in us, if we know that what we receive is also received by the Christ in us, quote, not I, but Christ in me, close quote, then when we pass through the gate of death, we no longer look back upon our ideals as though they wanted to alienate us from the world. Instead, 
we will then have committed our ideals to Christ, and we will know that it is the Christ who makes our ideals his own concern. He takes our ideals upon himself. And the human being can say, quote, I alone cannot take my ideals upon myself in such a way that they are guaranteed seeds for humanity on earth, in the same way as the plant seeds of the present summer are guaranteed seeds for the plant cover of the following summer. But the Christ in me can do this. The Christ in me imbues my ideals with the reality of substance. Close quote. Ideals that we nurture in such a way that we say, quote, Yes, as earthly human beings we have them, these ideals, but in us lives the Christ, and he takes them upon himself. Close quote. These ideals are true seeds of a future reality. Christ imbued idealism is permeated with the seed of reality. And if we truly understand Christ, then we look upon these ideals in such a way that we say, quote, ideals do not, to begin with, have something within them that guarantees their own reality, their own quality of realness, in the same way as this year's plant seeds contain a guarantee for the coming year. But if we uphold our ideals in such a way that we commit them to the Christ within us, then they are real seeds, close quote. If we develop a true Christ consciousness, if we make the words of Paul, quote, not I, but Christ in me, he is the bearer of my ideals, close quote, into our life substance, then we are able to say, quote, yes, out there are the ripening seeds with their germinating potential. There are the streams and seas, the hills and valleys. And alongside this, there is the world of idealism. Christ has taken on this realm of idealism, and now it has, in the present-day world, become like the seed of the future world, because Christ bears our ideals into the future world in the same way as the God of nature bears this year's plant seeds into the coming year. Close quote. This brings reality to our idealism. It removes from the soul those bitter, gloomy doubts that can creep in from our feeling. Quote, what will become of those ideals that are intimately linked with external reality, that are connected with everything that I must value most? Close quote. If we take the Christ impulse into ourselves, then we feel that what is ripening in the human soul as idealism, as wisdom treasure, is permeated saturated through and through with reality. And I have cited the two examples in order to show you, from the esoteric perspective, how a soul is affected when it is entrusted with what is Christ-imbued, and how differently a soul is affected when it is entrusted with wisdom that is not permeated with Christ. Truly, everything that a soul permeates with Christ in this earth life flows down to us quite differently from what is not Christ-imbued. It is indeed a shocking impression for someone with clairvoyant consciousness, looking out into the spiritual world, to observe souls in whom full Christ-consciousness has not developed during their last incarnation, to see these souls fighting for what is dearest to them, 
because in their ideals Lucifer has power over them, so that he can separate them from those fruits which as their real fruits ought to be enjoyed by the whole world. Quite different is the impression when observing souls who have let their wisdom treasures, their soul treasures, become Christ-imbued. Souls who, as though evoking an afterglow in us, work down upon our bodies already in this life, vitalizing our souls. What can be felt in this way as most precious inner soul warmth, as comfort in the most difficult conditions of life, as support in the blackest abysses of life, is precisely this quality of being permeated with the Christ impulse. And why? Because if we are truly permeated with the Christ impulse, we find that in the conquests of our soul, however imperfect they may appear in the face of earthly life, is contained this Christ impulse as the assurance and guarantee of their fulfillment. That is why Christ is such a comfort for our doubts in life such a support for the soul. There is so much that remains unfulfilled in the life of souls on earth. There is so much that seems precious to them, even though they are unable to regard it in any other way than what in the outer physical world is like the frequently ruined hopes of spring. But whatever we genuinely feel in our soul, whatever we can unite with our soul, as a valued possession, all this we can commit to Christ. And whatever the prospects may be of actually fulfilling it, if we have committed it to Christ, then He carries it on His wings into reality. It is not always necessary to be aware of this, but the soul that feels the Christ within it, as the body feels its blood as a life-giving element, senses the warmth, the promise of fulfillment, in this Christ impulse, as compared to everything that cannot be brought to reality in the external world, even though the soul justifiably longs for it to be actualized. The fact that clairvoyant consciousness sees these things when it observes souls after death is actually proof of how justifiable it is when the human soul in everything that it does, in everything that it thinks, feels itself permeated with Christ and takes the Christ into itself as comfort, as support, and as the very factor about which it says during its life on earth, quote, not I, but Christ in me, close quote. One should indeed say, quote, not I, but Christ in me, close quote, in this earthly life. I would like to remind you of a passage in the beginning of my book titled Theosophy. It is meant to identify one of the points where, at a certain stage of spiritual life, that which fills the soul in the realm of earthly life becomes a reality. In a certain passage in my Theosophy, I pointed out that the, quote, tat tuam asi, close quote, thou art that, as it is meditated by the Eastern sages, appears to them as a reality, precisely at the moment when the transition from the so-called soul world into the spirit world takes place. Please look up the passage in question. But there is something else that can become a reality, in a way that is of immense human significance. 
something of what a human soul who feels itself imbued with Christ can say in this life. That is, the Pauline words, quote, not I, but Christ in me, close quote, can become a reality. If one succeeds in thinking, not I, but Christ in me, in such a way that it really is an inner truth, then it becomes a reality after death in a most powerful, significant manner. For what we receive in this world, inspired by this view of life, through the life perspective of not I but Christ in me, this becomes our possession, becomes our inner nature between death and a new birth. And to the extent that it has become our inner nature, we may dispense it as its fruit to all of humanity. What we take into ourselves in such a way that it is done from the perspective of, in quotes, not I, this is what Christ makes into a common possession for all humanity. What I take up from the perspective of, in quotes, not I, will make it possible for me, after death, to say and feel, quote, not for me alone, but for all my fellow human beings, close quote. And only then may I say the words, quote, yes, I have loved him above all, even above myself. And this is why I have lived by the command, love thy God above all, close quote. Not I, but Christ in me. Quote, and I have fulfilled that other commandment, love thy neighbor as thyself. For whatever I have attained for myself will, through the fact that Christ carries it into reality, become the common possession of all of humanity. Close quote. We must let things such as these work upon us, and then we experience what Christ is meant to signify in the human soul. How Christ can be the bearer and supporter, the comforter and illuminator of the soul of human beings. And in this way we gradually get a sense of what may be called Christ's relationship to the human soul. We will then continue our studies tomorrow. The end of Lecture 7